0: Morning. Uh, today's service is sponsored by Peak Motor Oil. <laughs> good to see you guys uh, here today. Uh, so, you know, you think about engines. Engines are powerful. There's lots of parts in them. They serve a very good purpose. They help us get something done, get work done, move us around, whatever. Engines are great. And all these parts and engines are designed to work together. But they need one very important uh, piece to the equation, and it's motor oil. Motor oil, what's the purpose of it? The main purpose, according to Wikipedia, is to reduce friction, right? So if you don't have, let's just say that this right here is an engine. If you don't have enough motor oil in it, like if you're just running low, like there's just a little, can you see that? Just a little bit in there? It's going to be a lot of friction. So you, you need the adequate amount of motor oil in there so that things can, can work well. reduces friction. It's a lot like a relationships. Relationships thrive when there's grace, and grace is like motor oil because grace reduces the amount of friction that we experience. Grace is powerful. We absolutely... Relationships absolutely have to have grace in order to function. You know what they found? In long-term, happy marriages... You know what the one key ingredient to long-term happy marriages are? We extend grace to each other. Like, if we don't extend enough grace to each other, then there's going to be a problem. But they found that long-term happy marriages, like when you do those little things that you don't, the other person, you know, like it or whatever, you say, okay, I'm going to apply some grace. I'm going to, I'm going to accept that. You know, um, the hottest real estate market, I read this a few months ago, in high-end housing is two master suites two master suites, because people who have been married a long time and they've made a lot of money, they just want to go in two different directions they're finding because they don't have enough, they don't have enough grace for each other. They've run out of that grace. Isn't that fascinating? They just want to be a part. You know, I think about, you know, my marriage and Krista is so gracious to me. I could not be married to the more perfect wife in the absolute world. She puts up with all of my quirks with tremendous grace. It's incredible. My parking, I when I go into a parking lot, I just, even if we're in a hurry, everybody, think about it, even if we're in a hurry, she's in a hurry, I'm in a hurry, I have to park far away. I have to park. You know, and a lot of times I'll tell her when we're leaving, wherever we're leaving, I said, you know, no, no, you stay here. I'll leave five minutes early because I don't want her to see how far I've actually parked away. You know, <laughs> even when we're in, even when we're in, like, why did it take you so long to come in? Oh, it was crowded out there and I'll just be like, there'll be like 50 yards between me and the next car. Or, or like when she's cooking, I am so kind of OCD that I actually like to clean up. I'll say, can I, like, in the middle of the cooking, can I get down on the floor and clean around you or something like that? This 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 uh, smart this morning, I actually got this vase at the um, uh, thrift store, and I have another little vase that I got just in case as a backup. I had a little crumb in it, and when I was getting out of a car early this morning, that little crumb I saw it fell. In between the seats and it's been bothering me all you know I have all I'm just saying I have all these little quirks but she's so graciously she just pours that motor oil you know in there and it's so helpful because that's how relationships thrive when they I'm reading this book about uh, George Washington and it's by Ron Chernow I love uh, Ron Chernow he does so many great works on history and he's talking about Washington's in-laws and um, they were famous Absolutely famous for kind of fights, even in public. They would not get along well with each other. They, they, they ran out of grace. They they didn't they didn't pour enough grace in. They ran out of it. They just didn't have enough grace for each other. And they would get in fights with, with each other in public because they just irritated, just irritated each other after being together so long. And they were driving in a carriage down by the Chesapeake Bay. And this is during a time when there wasn't a lot of carriages in the United States of America, like over in England, they're British. Over England. There's plenty there, but we just didn't have carriages here. So this is a very unusual thing they did. So they got in a fight and there's a bunch of people around so they can overhear this. And Chernow's writing about this in the book. And you got to love the way the Brits talk. So his father-in-law actually runs the carriage straight into the Chesapeake Bay. And she says, where are you going, sir? And he says, to hell, Madam. And she says, drive on, sir, drive on. You know, they, they had totally, they had totally run out of this, you know, for each other. Here, here, here's, here's my question. Let me put this. So I just, so, because Peek makes me do this. Uh, so you can see the name there. And I got oil all over my hands. It's going to be a really slick sermon. Uh, uh, is there somebody in your life that you've run out of grace for? Is there somebody that you just like, that's it. <laughs> I have no more grace for you. We want to talk about grace today and how that affects relationships. And I want to say this. There is supernatural power. Like the gospel is rooted in grace. It's rooted in grace. And I would like us to do something that we've done the past couple of weeks. I'd like us to read together this most famous verse from Romans one sixteen. So it's on the screen. It's on the outline over at West Falls Church or Grace Live. You can can see it there on the screen or on your outline as well. Could we just, all of us at all three of our locations, just read this heartily and believe God that he'll give us supernatural power to extend grace in all of our relationships. Ready? For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I love hearing stories about grace. How about you? But I just love hearing stories where grace is ext- it's so moving. It really is incredibly, incredibly moving. Relationships thrive when there's this delicate balance between grace and truth. So what, what is grace? Grace is like the letter of, uh, it's, a, it's, it's not the letter of the law. It's the opposite letter of the law. So, so when there's just total truth, like truth is all the boundaries, it is the letter of the law. It can be oppressive, and it can be suffocating. Grace is this undeserved acceptance or approval or assistance. That's what grace is. And the two are like in total conflict with each other. Some of us grew up in homes where our parents were a little bit out of balance. Maybe they leaned hard on truth and it was really suffocating and there was some pretty heavy rules and you know that experience. Some of us actually grew up in homes where we were out of balance towards grace. Like, sure, do whatever you want. And we said, oh man, I wish there had been more rules. So it can go one way or the other, but there's this delicate balance, right? And some of us grew up in churches, same thing, where it was like all truth or it was just like all, it was all grace. But there's this incredible balance. We're told this about Jesus and John 1:14. It's a very important verse in the Bible. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full full of grace and truth, full of both. He was 100% grace and he was 100% truth. So he's 100% the letter of the law. You have to keep the boundaries. Relationships don't do well without boundaries. Right? If somebody treats another person by lying and disrespecting and cheating and all these things, that relationship is going to end. But if we treat somebody like if every boundary you, you, you break and we have no grace for it, that relationship also is going to end. So on either end of the spectrum, grace or truth, the relationship's going to end and that affects our relationship with God because our relationship with God is the same way. So God demands that we keep the letter of the law. He demands it. This is what we've been talking about in Romans. There's the demand that you keep the letter of the law. And yet here comes Jesus saying, I demand you keep the letter of the law, but I'm going to, I'm going to accept you. I'm going to approve of you without merit whatsoever. Even when you break the law, I demand you keep the law, but I'm... and how does that work? This is what we're going to see this morning. We're going to talk about how does all this come together? This paragraph, everybody think, just think about this. This paragraph, we're about ready to study. Some Bible scholars say it's the most important paragraph in the entire Bible. This is it. This is where we have arrived today. Most people say it's the heart of the heart of the heart of the gospel. So Romans is all about clarifying this thing that we call the gospel, which is the life and the story of Jesus Christ. It's what it's all about. This is where we've come to. What we've heard so far is there's a universal indictment against humanity. We have all broken the letter of the law. Every single person has broken the letter of the law. There's no one righteous, not even one, it says. Not even your godly grandmother. Even your godly grandmother has broken the letter of the law. The most rule abiding person, the most moral person you know, everybody has fallen short. But what is at stake here? We said this last week, but I want to give just a different twist this week. What's at stake here? Romans constantly is attached to a spiritual transformation in the lives of people, and it has dramatic effect. The spiritual transformation. Because the genuine spiritual transformation that you see throughout history attached to the book of Romans always, always, always leads to a social transformation, which means the world gets uh, becomes a better place. So it's not like, oh, yeah, a bunch of church people got together and they're having a revival and they're all excited and they're all emotional. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. This spiritual transformation that's connected throughout history With the book of Romans is when somebody experiences a spiritual transformation that always leads to a social transformation where society, where people outside of the church, where things improve dramatically, even globally. This is what's at stake. This is what we're talking about. That's why these things are so hard, but we want to push into them. Just one other thing I want to say. Back in the mid-1800s, 1860s, in New York City of all places, in Manhattan of all places, right before the Civil War, there was this great spiritual awakening that took place. One person actually went around. So It was a reporter, and he wrote about it in the newspaper. They have copies of this in the paper. He went around to the churches in Manhattan, and the churches in Manhattan during a weekday at lunchtime were packed with people. They were all praying. Churches were filled. They couldn't believe it. What's going on here? There was this spiritual awakening that took place. Fifty years later after the event, in the early 1900s in the United States of America, there was again this spiritual awakening. Fifty years after that again... In the in in the 1960s, in the late 1960s, there was again this spiritual awakening attached to the book of Romans, and it swept across the United States of America and made spiritual transformation and social transformation. And do you know where we are right now? We are now again 50 years, 50, 50, 50. And today, in 2019, we are 50 years removed from that. And we find ourselves today studying the most important paragraph in the Bible, sitting in modern-day Rome and wondering to ourselves, hopefully, could it happen again? Could it happen again? Could there be a spiritual transformation as we study this book that leads to a social transformation? I don't see why it couldn't happen. So here we go. Let's take a look at this most important paragraph in the Bible. I'm just going to break it down verse by verse and go through this. Verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. So the first two words are but now, but now. So there's been this universal indictment that nobody's keeping the law and you have to keep the law. You're totally responsible to keep the law and nobody's kept the law. So now we're in a big problem. But those two words, but now, say that something has reversed it, something totally brand new, unheard of, that we don't have on our mental maps, that we've never thought of before. C.S. Lewis used to say, I know the gospel is true because no human being would have ever thought of it. And this is what we're getting ready to talk about here in the most important paragraph in the Bible. It's not on our mental maps. Who would have ever thought this up before? There is no other philosophy. There's no other religion that actually talks about what we're getting ready to talk about right here. But now something is completely reversed. And that's why it's so hard to grasp. It's so simple, the gospel is, but so difficult because it's not in our wiring. It's not in our culture it's not in our humanity we would not think this way so i'm going to say just a few words about this because i spoke about this actually a few months ago and i want to revisit that if i can about this it's very important how do you get into a relationship either personally or professionally how does that how does that happen either personally or professionally you present your resume. When it says you don't have to keep the, the requirements of the law, when it says there's a righteousness, that righteousness is being talked of there, means your qualifications, your resume, how did you do? So you want to get a job. You want to get a job. You put together a great resume of all the things that you have done and all the things you've accomplished, and you put it before that person who's considering hiring and says, there, there you go. I deserve to have this job because of the things that you see here. If you want to get into an academic institution, a university, you put together your academic transcripts and you present them. He said, look at this. I want to go to Harvard. I get 800 on the SATs and my GPA is 2.0. Can I get in here, right? If you want to marry somebody, you want to marry somebody, you present kind of a resume it's not really on paper but you're presenting who you are and who you've been and what you've done maybe what car you drive i don't know but you know what i'm saying you're presenting you're presenting some yeah, right you're, that's what you're doing so think about this what's being said here apart from your resume you have been accepted so you present the worst job resume in the history of the world and god says you're hired you're in can't wait to get you on board There's no reason to do it. That doesn't make sense. Nobody in the world works this way. Nobody works this way. You you would not run your company this way. You would not run your organization this way. How about your academic institution? Like you flunked everything. You didn't even show up to school. And the institution says, yes, we'd love to have you as a student here. Who works that way? That's exactly what it's saying. Has anybody, has anybody married somebody with a bad resume? Don't ha- raise your hands, don't shake your heads. Has anybody married somebody with a bad resume? It's like, yes, I'd love to marry you. There's no reason to do it. There's no reason. And this is what's being talked about here. The best equivalent we can come to, and it's not a perfect equivalent, okay? Because some of us have, par- no parent is like God. God's our father, right? Our Jesus said, pray our father who art in heaven. None of us have perfect parents. But some of us have parents that are very, very far. I mean, I remember when I was in, you know, seminary. And I referred to God as a he one day in class. And there was another student that like just melted down, just freaked out. Said, don't. that's Because they had a very very bad experience with their father. They could not begin to think about God as father. So I understand this is going to be very difficult, but there are parents out there that are good parents. There are good parents that are out there. And it's the closest equivalent. When you really love your child, you might not like everything they're doing, but you would give your life for them in a second because you love them so much. And when everybody else says no, don't hire them. Don't let them into your institution. You know, don't believe in them. The parents, as they're saying, I believe. Like they're the last person standing there. It's the closest equivalent that we have is parenting. And that's why Jesus says, pray our father. It's the closest equivalent we have. It's not on our mental map. It's but now something brand new has completely happened. Verse 22 we are made right with god by placing our faith in jesus christ and this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are what is faith faith is when you put your confidence in somebody look here's what we know about people we are telic creatures it means we have to live with a purpose every single person in the world is living for something you might not have thought about it. You've never you know, gone deeply and think about that. But all of us have to live for something. We're living for something. There's some confidence that we're placing. This is what we know. We know this from studying people. We're going to. Every single person in this room and at West Falls Church and on Grace Life, we're placing our confidence in something. And what's being said here is, is place your confidence, place your faith in Jesus Christ. What better place? Somebody who loves you with truth and with grace, with, with boundaries and with acceptance. Somebody who has that balance perfectly down, 100% grace and 100% truth, who will stand by you no matter what, who says you must live by the letter of the law, and then when you break it, it's right there picking you up and dusting you off and holding you and encouraging you. Who else does that? And so it says here, Place your confidence in that kind of love. Place your confidence in somebody who Paul later on says is for you, not against you. Who wants your best. This is what it's saying here. Faith. Because faith, think about this, everybody. It's radically inclusive. If we had to, like, obey all the rules, if we had to be really strict and very disciplined in order to obey all these rules, some of us would do a much better job than others. Some of us are just wired. We're just wired. Have you noticed that about people? Some people are just wired to be on time for everything, right? Some of us are wired to be late for everything. I can say a lot of things. I'm not right now. But we're wired differently. We're wired to obey rules, and some of us are wired to break more rules. So if it was that, then some of us, it would be unfair, but this is by, all of us can put confidence in something. All of us are putting confidence in something. Where are you putting your confidence? Some of us have come from long family histories of living a certain way. There's a culture in your family and you're used to it for decades and centuries and it's built up over time. It would be unfair if it was said, well, you got a person who comes from a culture that's nothing like what the requirements of the law are, but yes, you have to do it compared to this person. Remember, we're talking about people who are obeying the law in Romans and people who don't even know what the law is. People who've been obeying the rules, like they have devoted their life Year after year after year, habit after habit after habit, centuries deep in their hum- deep in, in who they are as people and these other people who know nothing, and now they've come together. And it says it's putting your confidence. I'll ask you at the end of this message today to consider putting your complete, your most amount of your confidence in Jesus Christ who is for you, not against you, who loves you, who is full of grace and who is full of truth. We sang it just a little bit ago. Jesus Christ, the center of our lives. Be the center of our lives. Revolve your life. Put your confidence in Christ. Verse 23. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. There is a glorious standard and that nobody can meet it. There's a glorious standard and nobody can meet it. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying this. There are two universal truths about humanity. Two universal truths. The first one is this, that every person, every culture, every group, every nation, whatever you want to say, at every grouping of people believes in something that's right or wrong. And I know there are people who says, no, 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 I don't believe anything that's right or wrong. But that's not true. The moment you cross them some ways, it's all going to come out that they do believe there's something right or wrong. The moment you treat them wrong. So every single person on this planet believes there is a right or wrong. That's the first part of it. Every single person. Regardless, they've never read the Bible. It doesn't matter. Every single person has a standard. The second thing is this on the other side. Nobody can keep it. So I have certain standards, but I can't keep it. And that's what it means to be under the power of sin. I think that gossiping is wrong, and then I gossip. I think that lying is wrong, even little tiny lies, but then I lie. I think that breaking a promise is wrong, but then I break a promise. I'm under the power of sin. That's what Romans has been saying. There is a standard. It must be kept. But I can't keep it. That's what it means to be under the power of sin, that we're all falling short, that we're all breaking. Even our own standards. Let's just put all of God's standards aside for a second. Can you keep your own standards? You feel certain things are wrong, certain things should not be done. Do you then turn around and do the very things that you feel are wrong? Somebody does something wrong to you. And you're like, how could you do that? And then you turn around and do that same thing to somebody else. We can't even... That's what it means to be under the power of sin. This is a universal truth about humanity that we all fall short. We all fall short. AA and their 12 steps. Step number one, I am powerless. I used, to, I used to read that or hear that or talk about that and think, man... That's wrong. Something about that. I'm powerless. How could that, how could that possible? I have power. I can make changes. I can do, but that's not what it's talking about. Because the 12 steps actually are based on the gospel. And they're really based on Romans chapter 3, which says, look, I have a standard. I want to meet it. Sometimes I do, but there's a lot of times I don't. I can't meet it 100% of the time. I'm always finding myself at some level, in some way, falling short, falling short. I'm powerless. What's interesting here is is that we are powerless to keep it. And then you might say, "Well, wait a minute. If you're powerless, then you have no responsibility." What Roman says you're totally responsible. You're totally powerless and totally responsible, which means you're perfectly stuck. You are responsible for doing something you can't do. That doesn't seem quite fair. You're responsible for doing something you can't you can't do, you can't keep. And that's where we come to the final verse, verse number 24. Because God offers us a very, very gracious plan. And that's why I titled this message today Problem Solved. Here's what 24 says. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. I'm going to read that again. Yet God in his grace Grace. God has a lot of motor oil for us. He can just fill that up. Has freely forgiven us of the penalty of our sins. You know, a lot of times, and we've kind of hinted at this before in this series. What is the penalty of our sins? I mean, the immediate thing that comes to our mind is, oh, okay, hell. Well, let's forget hell for just a second, everybody, because we can experience hell on earth. Let's talk about what Adam and Eve suffered immediately when they turned away from God, and they suffered shame, tremendous shame. There's a a natural penalty for breaking the laws. There's a natural, when I don't meet my own standards, I feel ashamed. When I don't meet God's standards, I feel ashamed. There's a penalty of shame. Right? And we want to find relief from the burden of shame. Up in New York City, there's something called a big debt clock. Maybe some of you have taken a trip to New York City and you've seen the debt clock that is up there, right? It's huge. It's 25 feet wide. It's got over 300 lights in it. It weighs 1,500 pounds and it just calculates the debt of the United States of America. And it just keeps rolling up and up and up. Click, 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 click. click. Over and over and over again. That's kind of like how we feel because when we fall short of our own standards and we fall short of God's standards there's this shame even though we maybe we haven't thought deeply about it but it's calculating on the inside of us early in my ministry actually early in the ministry here at Grace I used to tell this funny little story trying to help you know grasp what this whole thing is about about sin and shame and all being calculated and I would say that you know I I would stand up here like I'm doing now and say, you know, I, I, had a, I had a dream last night. I had a dream that I went to heaven and I got to heaven and there was this huge control room, just this massive, massive room and it had what looked like clocks all on the walls and underneath of every clock was a name. And I saw an angel walking around with a pad, you know, and he was making notes and I called the angel over and I says, what is this? And they said, these are sin meters and it's measuring everybody's sin on earth. And I thought oh, wow, this is great. And I thought, I'm going to go look at mine. And I thought, no, I don't want to go look at mine. So I didn't look at mine. I said, let me, right, let's me let check out some famous people. And this is when Billy Graham was still alive. And I said, i want to go look at Billy Graham's. I, it, was, it was barely moving. I look at Mother Teresa's. And, of course, it was barely moving. I thought to myself, you know, I want to look at Christa's. went over and I found Krista Sly. There she is. And like, the thing was just not moving. I called the angel. He says, that thing hadn't moved in years. And I said, yep, yep. That makes sense. And then I would say, then I would say something like, well, you know, and I'd pick somebody in, in most cases, I would pick Pastor Derek over at West Falls Church. And I say, let me, let me go see how, let me go see how Pastor, you know, Pastor Derek. I went over and I found his name right there, but there was nothing. There was there was no there was no meter, there was no clock, there was nothing there. And I called the angels, what's what's going on? He says, Oh, we we keep that in the control room. We use it as a fan. <laughs> sorry about sorry about that, Derek. Now, but I'm telling that story for a purpose. Cause we think that it's being measured in heaven. Actually it's being measured in here. We think it's being measured in heaven and actually it's being measured because that's where it was measured in Adam and Eve and that's where it's been measured in all humanity is that we don't meet our own standards and we don't meet God's standards and then we're struggling and we're trying to find relief somehow and we don't know, we don't know why we're doing the things we're doing, but we've got to find relief somehow. Brene Brown, who is like America's leading researcher on this issue of shame, talks so much about this and she's done so much great research and even though, she'll say, even though for many years like, oh no, that's wrong, that's not wrong, that's not wrong, you can do that don't feel guilty don't let anybody put their guilt on you no morals on you and we've said that and we've preached that and we've preached that you know what's happened in america she says americans are actually swimming in shame we're swimming in it and is it any surprise then that we're swimming in shame that then we seek all kinds of ways to find relief from it I, we're so anxious in america and we. We eat too much, and we spend too much, and we work too much, and we entertain too much, and we lust too much. We do this stuff to try to figure out what's going on, and what we really need is we need relief, and we need relief from God by his grace, by his truth, and by his grace, because he graciously accepts, and we come and we say, here's my my cup of shame. Would you take it? Would you take it graciously? I'm putting my confidence in you. Would you do that? There are all kinds of things that we think about that we've done, right? Right? The vows we've broken, the lies we've told, the thing that we shouldn't have done. Then there's the college years, right? (laughs) The decisions we've made, the website that we shouldn't have gone to, the conversations we've had, the gossip, the names we've called, the arguments, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the records we keep on other people. And it all just keeps adding up and we seek relief. We're stuck. We're stuck in this thing where there's a standard. Whether you want to believe in God's standard or not, your own standard. We fall short of our own standard. And then we need to have relief from that. How are we going to find relief? I read this article this past week about Kyrie Irving. My apologies if you're not an NBA fan, but uh, Kyrie Irving was a point guard for the Cleveland Cavaliers when LeBron James was there, and they did not get along very well at all. And Kyrie actually ended up leaving. It didn't go well, and he was very upset with, Le- with LeBron James and this whole thing. And so he's writing He's writing now, I guess, because they, they were together at the All-Star game. And he was saying that he, listen to this, He needed to go and apologize to LeBron James. He said he had to confess his wrongs. And then he says this, because I was stuck in life. I couldn't move forward. He had done wrong things. He had said wrong things. And here you have this incredible super... I mean, this guy is so gifted as an athlete. It is unbelievable. Any athletes in the room, you understand what I'm talking about. Just phenomenal athlete but he said, I was completely stuck in life. Why? Because he needed to confess something. He needed to make it right. He needed to find relief from that shame. And Brene Brown says, yes, that's what you do. You confess it. You confess it. That's how you find relief. You own it. You speak it out loud. You say it. You don't hide it. You don't ignore it. You don't act like it doesn't exist. You confess it. You know what? You know who else says it? The Bible says it all over the place." From Genesis to Revelation, all over the place. You confess it. Exact same way research shows, shows, shows again and again. The Bible is absolutely true. You have got to find relief from this burden of shame. And you find it in Christ because of his grace that he extends to us. It is completely unearned. Without merit, you're hired, even though your resume is terrible. You're hired. I love, love, love to hear stories of grace. Love it. I love John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. Drag this woman. Jesus is up by the temple. Said, she's caught in the act of adultery. They're right at the temple. The law is right there in the temple. We know what it says. The letter of the law says, she dies. She dies. And he comes to her aid gets on the ground, begins writing something. It's the only sermon we ever have that Jesus wrote. He wrote that day. It's the only one we ever had. He wrote it. I'd love to know what he was writing. It's a wonderful story of grace. Prodigal son, Luke 15. What a great story. Son goes and he just, all these terrible things that he does. I mean, he just racks up. Click, 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 click. He just racks it up and he comes back so burdened with shame. And grace is extended. But you know, when I hear those stories of grace, I never forget... I don't forget. I'm not like it's not lost somewhere. That the woman caught in adultery had adultery with somebody. That there was another woman out there who had been betrayed and hurt desperately. Or the prodigal son. You don't want to forget the fact that what he did to his father, how he broke his father's heart. Every time there's an extension of grace, we just need to be very realistic here. It hurts somebody very deeply in order to extend that. Grace is a wonderful thing. But somebody is hurting extremely deeply in order to extend that. That grace. I've told a story for years because it's always has just moved me so deeply. I actually told it a few years ago, so it'll be redundant for some of you. But this great story about Tony Campolo is a sociologist and a preacher from Eastern University. And he's in Hawaii. This is years ago. He's in Honolulu. He's all jet lagged, can't sleep, gets up at like 2.30 in the morning, goes to a little diner. And at 3.30, two prostitutes walk in. One of them is named Agnes. And they're talking back and forth. And Agnes says to the other prostitute, I've never had a birthday. And the other prostitute says, who cares? Why are you telling me? I don't care about your birthday. And she says, "I I know you don't. I just tell me I've never had a birthday party in my life. I've never, no one's ever given me a cake, no one's ever given me a present on my birthday." And they walk out a little bit after three thirty in the morning. And Tony Campolo, this preacher, looks at the guy running the diner. He says, "They come in here every night. Yep, same time, same time every night." He says, "I got an idea. Can we throw her a party?" Can I come back tomorrow at 3.30? Can I buy a cake and some streamers and cards and stuff? And Agnes, happy birthday. Can I do that? And the guy's like, yep, and I'm baking the cake. This would be awesome. Let's do it. Word goes out on the street, every prostitute in Honolulu shows up at that diner that night. And here you have a preacher and dozens of prostitutes packed into this diner. Agnes walks in. Surprise, she's crying like crazy. Can't believe this. The cake. You can cut the cake. She's. I can't cut the cake. Can I just take the cake? I want to go at 3.30 in the morning and run down the street and show my mother that somebody cared enough for me to make a cake. And she takes the cake and runs out. And there's Tony Campolo surrounded by all these prostitutes. And they're just standing there looking at each other. He says, "Uh, could we pray? And they hold hands and they pray in this diner at 3.30 in the morning in Honolulu. And they pray for Agnes. This prostitute is very moving, very moving. But you know what? I never forget that probably um, a number of Agnes' customers were husbands who were breaking their vow. Everybody, I, I will never forget the night, and this happened years ago, years ago. I was in the basement of a home. And a wife knew there was something wrong with the husband. She knew it. She knew it. And he wouldn't say it. And he wouldn't be honest with her. And I sat with him that night for hours. And finally, he confessed to having an affair. I have never heard crying like that in my life. I'm telling you, that wife's cries, wails, shook that entire house. I will never forget it. I understand grace is wonderful and I love it, but there's another side to it. There's pain and there's suffering. The tremendous story that we have in the Bible of Hosea is is incredible. God says to Hosea, I want you to go and marry a woman whose marrying resume is absolutely terrible. Like this is the worst person you could ever marry. Hosea, go marry her. Oh, great. Great. This is great. She already had a track record. Already knew what the deal was. Go and marry her. Okay. They get married. And sure enough, even though he loved her, even though he cared for her, even though he tried to love her every way that God encouraged him to love her, what did she do? She still stepped out on him. And she got pregnant. And of all things, he had to name the baby, not mine. It wasn't his, and he knew it. And it broke his heart. And God says, I need you to still love her. I need you to love her. And he did. And she stepped out again and again until actually she ended up leaving him. And she got involved, I guess, when those days would be some type of pimp or something like that. She, got, she became enslaved. And now he, he hears that actually she's being auctioned off. To other people. That's how deep. I mean, she's married to a prophet. This is a prestigious honor. And now here she is, the wife of a prophet, and she is on the slave block. And what they would do back then is they would just strip you naked. And so probably there she is. Her name is Gomer, and she's stripped naked, and she's on the slave block. And it's a terribly shameful thing. It's so embarrassing. And here she is, and people just start bidding. Whatever, oh, this money, that money, whatever, price. And in the midst of all the clamor going on, she hears what? She hears her husband's voice bidding on her. And he's determined to outbid everybody, and he does. And when he buys her back, he goes up and he throws his robe on her. And he holds her tenderly and looks in her eyes and says, now you're going to come home and you're going to be my wife and I'm going to love you. What an incredible story. It was killing him to do that. It killed Hosea to do that. It killed him. It hurt him so deeply to extend that. Jesus Christ as a standard. We all fall short. And it killed him to extend that grace to the entire world and to you individually. To the entire world into you individually. Today we're going to have communion. Don't move if you're on the communion team. Just hold a second. We're going to have communion. When you take that cup, when you take that cup of communion, I'd like you to envision... All of us, every single one, me included. I have a cup of shame. Click, click, click. Envision you holding a cup of shame and extending it to Christ and taking his cup of grace and allowing him to relieve you by his incredible grace. Allowing him to relieve you of that burden. Allow his spirit to enter in and to bring you relief. Because he loves you that deeply, there is nothing that he would not do. If you're on the communion team, if you would please go, and the music team is going to come up and it's going to help me. I want to explain as they're moving around, just briefly, if I can, just some simple logistics. Maybe you're here for the first time and you've never obviously seen communion here at Grace before, so just a couple logistics very, very quickly. And as we do, I want to just... uh, say to West Falls Church, Pastor Derek is going to lead over there. God bless you. Thanks for tuning in and being with us today. What will happen here is the team's going to come. They have trays, and they'll come to you, and they'll pass the trays down. And in the middle of the tray, there's a a small wafer. You'll take a wafer, take a cup. Communion's open to everybody. But if you don't want to take it, don't feel embarrassed whatsoever, not whatsoever but you'll take a wafer and take a cup. And if you'll just do me a favor, if you'll just hold it, because then after the team plays, well, oh, come on, come on now. Uh, after the team plays, uh, we'll have a prayer and then we'll eat and we'll gin- drink together and then we'll have a, a closing prayer. So team's going to serve you now. Thank you. Uh, if you're watching on Grace Live, I hope, I mean to say this every time, but I hope you'll grab a cup and a wafer and join us. I'm supposed to say that every time I don't. I fall short of my own standards and the team that tells me to say it every single communion, so. Um, again, I just want to remind you, cup of shame to receive this cup of grace. He offers us Grace. Does that mean that there's not a standard? Actually, he has a standard higher than anybody else you have met on this planet. His standard for you is sky high, and yet his love for you is so deep that no matter what you've done or how many times you've done it, he extends his cup of grace to you and offers it freely, freely, to relieve no matter what burden you are under today. That kind of love is fantastic and unheard of. And I want to ask you, if you've never done this, would you consider placing your confidence in Jesus Christ today? Can you imagine? We all place our confidence in something. Can you imagine any other person that you have ever heard of that you would rather place your confidence in them than somebody that loves you that much and has a standard that high? Is there anybody else? I encourage you, if you're on Grace Live, push the prayer button. If you're here and you want us to pray with you, we'll be right here at the prayer wall after. Put your confidence in somebody who loves you that much and has that much grace. I'd like us to pray for the bread and the cup, and then let's take it together. Will you pray with me, Heavenly Father? Thank you. Thank thank you for this word in Romans, this incredible paragraph in the Bible that describes not only your glorious standard but your extravagant grace. As we extend our cups of shame to you today, would you fill us with your grace and relieve us of our burdens and set us free, glorious free. God... May we soar today in our spirits because we have been relieved of the burden of shame and find transformation in you. Bless the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup. In Christ's holy name, amen.